Mark chapter 16 is our text. We're going through the Gospel of Mark. We have this study and one other study left. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. Navigate uh, on your device or open your Bible. Follow along. The topic, three women bringing spices to anoint the body of Jesus are the first to witness his victory over death. The title of our message, Victory is the Spice of Eternal Life. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we recognize that your Holy Spirit was sent to teach us. You said he would come and be our teacher. And since this is your living word, we need his instruction to divide between the soul and the spirit and to speak to us in our innermost being. It all sounds mysterious, Lord, but it's really just you trying to show how much you love us and reveal your son Jesus to us. I pray that we would see him in this text in a powerful way and that we would be able to reveal him to others in a greater way. Help us get through these words, Lord, without distraction. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. If I were to say, the Lord is risen, what would you say? All right, I had to have second, first service do that twice. They were kind of mousy about that, you know. I said, the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. But first service, what can I say? They have their qualities. We don't use it too much, this greeting. In fact, we don't use it at all in the West, but Eastern Christians have greeted one another with those words since very early in the history of the church. There is no Christianity and therefore no salvation without the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. As the Apostle Paul declares, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. We believe in the resurrection. The question we want to explore today is this. Do we believe in the power of the resurrection of Jesus? In other words, does the resurrection make a difference in my daily life? Well, it made a difference on the very first third day. The believers first to the tomb were initially apprehensive. By the time they left the tomb, they were amazed. Which word best describes you each day? Apprehensive or amazed? I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, do you daily approach the empty tomb with a sense of apprehension? Or number two, do you daily approach the empty tomb with a sense of amazement? Let's first of all take a look at our apprehension in verses one, two, and three. Now, Jesus made it loud and clear that he planned to be crucified and to rise from the dead on the third day. Especially during the last six months of his earthly life, Jesus emphasized the importance and the necessity of his upcoming crucifixion and the triumph of his resurrection. In Matthew 16, we read this, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. It says he began to talk about this, and that means it became a constant topic in his teaching to his followers. You might say it was the main theme of his last six months of instruction to him. He was often, frequently, all the time talking to them about these things. The followers of Jesus had seen him raise the dead. He also made the amazing claim that he had the authority to accomplish his own resurrection. John chapter 10, therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. 
And so over and over and over again, Jesus was telling his followers, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to rise on the third day, I have the power from my Father to accomplish these things. Jesus was not misunderstood. Even non-believers knew what he was predicting. This also from Matthew, this is chapter 27. On the day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. You might argue that the people's hearts were dull and that the disciples were a little bit blinded to this truth, but even non-believers understood that Jesus was saying the third day the tomb will be empty, and they took steps to make it so that he couldn't claim a resurrection. The point I'm trying to make is that the followers of Jesus had ample teaching regarding the resurrection. Keep that in mind as we see the first three to approach the tomb. Uh, Verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. We met these fine ladies in our last study when they were at the cross on Calvary as Jesus was crucified, and we spent a good deal of time describing them and talking about where they came from and all. They were last at the cross, first to the tomb, and that in itself speaks of their great devotion to Jesus. They bought spices to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, Jesus' body had already been spiced by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. He had been washed, anointed with myrrh and aloes, I think about 75 pounds worth, and then wrapped in a new linen shroud according to the burial customs of that time. There was no need for further spices or anointing. Wrapped as he was, it wouldn't be possible to anoint Jesus in any customary way. All they would be able to do is pour the spices on top of his linen uh, burial shroud. Again, we see the great devotion of these ladies. They were coming with more spices, and they were willing to waste them, anointing the exterior surface of the shroud if it would show how much they loved Jesus. Now, Jews were restricted to walking only what was called a Sabbath day's journey. Forced to wait, these ladies set out just as soon as it was lawful to do so. Now, what's funny is that there was and is no real agreement on how far a Sabbath day's journey is. The rabbis kept changing it and lengthening it during the years. That's one of the problems with those who insist that you must keep the Sabbath. There's no real listing of ways to keep the Sabbath. And it always breaks down to this, the things that I don't want to do anyway are how I keep the Sabbath, and if you do them, you're breaking the Sabbath. And, and it's, it's crazy. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to overly criticize any Sabbatarians, but no one can tell you what you can and can't do biblically on the Sabbath and, and how far you can go. Probably according to the rabbis, you've already traveled too far on the Sabbath, you're going to have to stay here if this was, you know, if this was, uh, we were having our meeting on Saturday night, you'd just have to spend the night here because you couldn't go home because it would be too far to take a Sabbath day's journey. And so um, 
One of the problems with those who insist you keep the Sabbath is that no one can tell you what that means. Now, since we know what they are going to discover at the tomb, we can understand the reference to the Sabbath a little differently. Listen to these words. When the Sabbath was passed, that's full of insight for us. It's a powerful statement letting us know that the old Jewish system, what we sometimes summarize by calling the law, has been fulfilled. In context, the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath was over, but Mark is also telling us that the Sabbath is over in terms of the keeping of the law of Moses because Jesus has fulfilled it all on the cross and it's been replaced by the power of the resurrection. You don't need to take my word for it. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. And those are all things pertaining to the law of Moses, which are a shadow of things to come, the substance is of Christ. And so Paul says, don't worry about, don't let anybody else judge you, don't let anybody tell you you have to eat certain foods and not eat other foods or keep certain days and not keep certain days. That's all past. It was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. They were all a shadow of what was fulfilled in him. Things like the Sabbath pointed to Jesus, and now that he has risen from the dead, we find our rest in him moment by moment, day by day. So people say, you mean there isn't a time of rest? Shouldn't we set aside a time of rest each week to, you know, honor God and spend time with him? No, we should live in the rest of our salvation that Jesus provides for us moment by moment and day by day. There's a permanent rest that we enter into through Jesus Christ. All of that was a shadow of the reality which is in Jesus. And so uh, the Sabbath was passed, so don't return to it thinking you can somehow keep a set of rules and rituals that are required for you to either attain or maintain your salvation. doesn't matter who's telling you this. It's just like the men called the Judaizers in the New Testament. They were individuals who uh, believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that you needed to accept or receive Christ, but then they would say, but you also need to keep the law of Moses. And wherever Paul would come in and teach grace, they would come behind him and say, well, you've started well, You've believed in Jesus, but unless you're also keeping the Sabbath and being circumcised and doing these other things, you're not really saved. And that's essentially the word of of the Sabbath today. If you don't do what we say to do on the Sabbath, you're probably not really saved. And that's a, a powerful negative that is not biblical. Jesus is our Sabbath, and if you're born again, you are enjoying your rest in him. Verse 2. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Today, we would say it was as soon as they could. I doubt they even slept the night before. Without clocks to tell them the exact time, they'd be gauging the exact moment very early in the morning that they could honestly say the Sabbath was over and set out for the tomb. Verse 3, and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? They had a major obstacle to overcome. A two-ton tombstone stood between them and Jesus. Not a one-ton tomato. I don't know why I keep thinking about that. (laughs) Anybody do that with Wontonamera, the famous song? I ate a one-ton tomato. No, that's... All right, never mind. Two-ton tombstone between them and Jesus. It would take several... Cheez-Its! 
Anyway, uh, it would take several strong men to open it for them. The moment they could, they set out to perform a service that they didn't need to do against all odds that they could even do it. Have we seen devotion similar to this before in the Gospel of Mark? Well, in chapter 14, you might remember a woman broke an alabaster jar filled with costly spikenard so that she could anoint Jesus for his burial. It was, practically speaking, a total waste of resource. But the Lord received it as an act of worship, and therefore it had infinite worth. Was the devotion of these three ladies like that? Was it an act of worship and therefore of infinite worth to Jesus? Not really. The, women, uh, the woman, rather, in chapter 14 heard Jesus as he described his upcoming death. She believed his words and she acted accordingly. She anointed Jesus as if he was already dead because she believed he would die just as he said. And so very simply, Jesus said, I'm going to die, be buried, and rise from the dead. And this woman said, then I'm going to anoint you for your burial because you said you were going to die, and I believe that. And Jesus received that from her as an act of worship. The two Marys and Salome were coming to anoint Jesus as if he were dead when he had repeatedly make it clear that on the third day, he would be alive. They had totally missed his teaching. They had had lots of instruction from Jesus about his death, burial, and resurrection. It's all that Jesus talked about towards the end. Even non-believers understood it. They obviously had incredible love for Jesus. They had faith to believe that somehow the stone would be rolled away but they were fully convinced Jesus was dead and gone and were coming to anoint what they believed was his corpse. So let's be real. They should have brought lawn chairs to sit outside the tomb to await Jesus' resurrection. Forget the anointing. What are you guys bringing spices for? He's going to be risen. Grab your lawn chair, bring an ice chest. Let's just celebrate this thing. It sounds funny, but that's really what they should have done. The Lord's teaching about his resurrection had no immediate effect on these ladies. They approached life as if Jesus were dead. Now, I want to make a comparison to us. It seems that it is possible to be a Christian and to believe Jesus rose on the third day, but to not understand the power of his resurrection in our daily life, thereby approaching life as if Jesus were dead. I get that from something Paul said in Colossians chapter 3. Let me read it to you in a paraphrased version that's called The Message. This is Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Paul says, so if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, then act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with things right in front of you. Look up. Be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. And so apparently Paul saw some believers as if they were shuffling along in their walk with the Lord. They were not acting as if there was a power available to them by which to walk with Christ and live out the Christian life. Paul in another place expressed his own constant desire. He said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. It seems by his wording that I can know Jesus, believing he is risen, but not walk in the power of his resurrection. What is the power of his resurrection? 
Pastor Greg Laurie puts it this way. He says, the resurrection of Jesus gives us power to live the Christian life. Certainly, the Bible does not teach that we will be sinless in this physical body we now live in. On the other hand, we can sin less, not by our own abilities, but by the power of the Spirit. Christ can make us altogether different kinds of people. We must believe that. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Another author wrote this. The resurrection is more than just an event that happened once in history. It's the source of the power you can experience in your own life every day. The same resurrection power that brought Jesus from death to life is available to you. And if you tap into it, you'll see amazing transformation in your own life too. How do we appropriate this power? Well, the risen Lord lives in us by his Holy Spirit. As Billy Graham says, his divinity inhabits my humanity. You can live the Christian life not in your own strength, but in the strength of a risen Savior. You can plug into power every day by faith. Galatians 2.20, many of you have it memorized. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Like the two Marys and Salome, you can be wonderfully devoted to Jesus, bringing him costly gifts as a token of your worship, but you can be shuffling along, defeated rather than victorious, because you are not appropriating by faith the power of his resurrection that is always immediately available to you. Are you apprehensive most of the time, wondering how some giant stone that stands in your way is going to be overcome? then receive the power of the resurrection that is yours by faith. There are, listen to me, no steps to receiving it. Now, we, especially in the West, we like to be told what to do. And so I've, sitting here when I was studying, and you're sitting here listening, you're saying, okay, this sounds fantastic. What do I need to do? What are the steps that I need to take in order to have this power in my life? There are no steps. There cannot be any steps to appropriating the power of the resurrection because you need the power of the resurrection to take any step with the Lord in the first place. I can't do anything apart from the power of God. And so if I need to do something to acquire the power of God, then there's a problem. There's going to be a disconnect. If, for example, I say, you must deny yourself and then this resurrection power can be yours, the truth is that you need to tap into the power of the resurrection in order to deny yourself. If you're going to go about thinking you can deny yourself, then you might as well be a Buddhist. You might as well think on some other mystical fleshly plane that you're going to beat down your flesh or accomplish something in order to become spiritual. Jesus is saying, I died, I rose from the dead to give you resurrection power that's available to you right now by faith without you doing anything and you can do nothing except receive that power and if you're trying to figure out how to get it, then you're putting up obstacles in your way. And I think one reason I shuffle along is because I put the cart before the horse, or in this case, the deed before the power to accomplish the deed. I establish rules to live by that I think are prerequisites to receiving the power of the resurrection, but those rules are obstacles that keep me mired in my own self-effort. I'm always trying to achieve something that Jesus already gave me through his resurrection. There is nothing for you to do 
except to receive it by faith. Wrap your mind around that. Secondly, do you approach the empty tomb with a sense of amazement? This is in verses 4 through 8. Are you looking for something to do in Los Angeles? Why not take a tour of Forest Lawn Cemetery? Anybody been on that tour? Man, I can't believe it. I thought no one would admit to that, but good for you. Actually, it's probably a really fantastic tour. Here's a couple of things from their website. Ride in climate control comfort on the Forest Lawn Trolley. As you hear about our historic and beautifully landscaped grounds on this two-hour tour led by one of our trained docents. New tour for 2016, so those of you who've been there want to go for this. New for 2016 is the Hail to the Chief tour. First Lady Abigail Fillmore has agreed to come up from the other side and take you on a fascinating trolley tour of Forest Lawn that will highlight people that had ties to the White House or who have held high political positions locally. Sounds a little ghastly to me, but anyway. Why am I thinking about that? Because our tomb visiting ladies are about to get a private tour of Jesus' tomb with a very talkative supernatural docent of their own. Verse 4, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. First item on the third day tomb tour was the tombstone. It had been rolled away. First thoughts about it were, how? since it was described as being very large. Matthew's gospel tells us an angel had rolled it away, but the ladies missed that, so they were just wondering how it happened. The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. In his many post-resurrection appearances, it's clear that Jesus can appear and disappear places at will. We like to say he can walk through walls, but we're really not sure how he does it. So the disciples are having a meeting, He's not there. Next thing you know, there he is. And then a little bit later, he's gone. So we say that he came through the walls. But he just appears and disappears at will. The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out, but to let us see in. Verse 5, in entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. He's an angel. Mark is telling us how he appeared to these ladies. They went into the tomb, and when they saw him, he appeared as a young man in a white robe. If you'll recall, in a previous study, we said that Mark called this angel a young man so that we would connect him with another young man in an incident at the arrest of Jesus. And we spent about 10 minutes developing some symbolism that uh, Mark was uh, doing there. And so I'd encourage you to go back and review that study rather than going over it again. Under any circumstances, it would be alarming to enter a tomb and find someone hanging out in there. It was a little bit eerie. And so they went into the tomb. Of course, they were initially expecting to find the body of Jesus. Uh, They don't know why the stone was rolled away. And they go in, and here's this guy just hanging out in there. Usually people who hang out in tombs, not not really friendship material, if you understand what I'm saying. And remember, they still fully expected to find the body of Jesus. But he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Like a good docent in a tomb tour, the angel gives the ladies all the pertinent data. First, this was, in fact, the very tomb in which Jesus had been laid. They weren't at the wrong tomb. It was the correct tomb. The fact that his body was gone has greater significance than that. The angel calls the Lord... Jesus of Nazareth, because that is how the ladies were thinking about him. They were seeking the Jesus who was from Nazareth as if he were a mere man who had been crucified and entombed 
and were still in the tomb. Had they received his teaching on the resurrection, they'd have come without spices to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the angel is letting them know that the Jesus they're seeking is more than a man. He is the Son of God. He is very God of very God, and he is alive. The angel reiterates that Jesus was crucified. He gives his own verbal death certificate. Jesus was really, really dead when he was laid in the tomb. But here it comes. He is risen. Now, I I spent a lot of time on just those three words in English. I wondered if the angel practiced how he would say it, where he would put the emphasis, how loudly he would say. I mean, these are incredible words. And, And he gets to say them for the first time to these three ladies. Did he say, he is risen? Did he shout it? He's risen. Did he say, he is risen? I mean, there's a, you know, if you're an actor, any of you take drama classes? Obviously not very successfully, but if you did, you know, there's a lot of different ways. And you can think of certain scenes in certain movies that are just the pacing even and the volume. And, and, you know, sometimes it's a whisper and sometimes it's a shout. And the way that the actor brings the dialogue is fantastic. And so this angel has arguably the most glorious words ever spoken in the history of the human race. I still get excited about Neil Armstrong, you know, watching the 1969 move down the, the ladder. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Those are that. Somebody was thinking when they came up with that. Now, for those of you who don't believe that we landed on the moon, I'll talk to you later. But <laughs> whether we landed there or not, that's a great first statement. But you know what? That is nothing compared to he is risen. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, nothing to, to just kind of Uh, get out there. I mean, these are important words. He is not here. Well, duh. Why state the obvious? Well, I don't know why exactly, but it smacks of, hey, ladies, you just missed him. In fact, Mary would see him in just a few minutes, but not in this gospel record. And and I think maybe the, the intention is you missed him, but you are going to see him. He is risen in a way that is going to be real to you. They were encouraged to see the place where they laid him. We know again from other accounts, his shroud was still there, as was the garment that covered his face. The angel was encouraging them to see for themselves, to look at the evidence. The resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. The Bible encourages you to see for yourself, to look at the evidence. There is no theory of man's that has ever been sufficient to counter the facts as they are presented in God's word. A lot of what the angel says here counters some of the major theories. One that it was the wrong tomb, that they went to the wrong tomb and that they found an empty tomb. The angel says, this is the tomb. Another, that he wasn't really dead, but he only appeared to be dead and then he revived in the tomb. And and the angel says, no, he was crucified. Another that says his body was stolen. The angel says, no, look at the garments here. This is where he was laid. And so there is no human theory that can account for the simple biblical facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Josh McDowell says, there is evidence that demands a verdict. And many intellectuals who have studied the resurrection of Jesus Christ have ended up coming to faith in Jesus Christ because of the insurmountable evidence 
that he is indeed alive. Verse 7, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. They immediately received a mission. This smacks of the grace of God. For one thing, they had completely missed the truth of the resurrection. They came seeking dead Jesus, not risen Jesus. That kind of dullness usually goes unrewarded, but it's just the thing God is looking for to bring him glory. The Lord didn't say, you guys totally missed it, so I need somebody else who's more credible to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. No, he, he allowed for their failure and told them what to do anyway. And for another thing, they were women. And in that culture, the testimony of women meant very little. Yet God chose as his first witnesses these women. The Lord had promised his followers they'd meet up after his resurrection in Galilee. He wanted them to know that meeting was still on his calendar. The events that had uh, come between his saying that and his rising from the dead hadn't changed that divine appointment. That was still part of the plan. This establishes that the resurrection guarantees us forgiveness and ensures our fellowship with Jesus because he says specifically, tell Peter. And you remember the last time we saw Peter, he was three times denying Jesus. Three times he denied the Lord according to prophecy. And one of the first things Jesus says is, tell his disciples and Peter. He wants Peter to know he's still a disciple, that he's still in the mix. I can envision Peter asking, did he really say that? Are you sure? He actually used my name. He said, Peter, this would have washed over him as waves of joy. I love that song, He Knows My Name. Benny Hester had uh, a song. He was an early Christian performer. He had a song in which he sang to Jesus, though some know me well, still nobody knows me like you. Jesus knows you, and yet he loves you. Does that, first of all, terrify you? If it doesn't terrify you, you're not being honest about who you really are in your heart of hearts. Yes, you're born again. Yes, the Holy Spirit resides in you. But you're a sinner, and you still have a tendency to sin, and you still have things that you wouldn't want anybody else to hear, anybody else to know. And yet Jesus says, I know everything there is to know about you, Gene. I know your thoughts before you think them as dark and as troubling as they can be sometimes. And that's terrifying, but it's also amazing because he's called me to himself. He's caused me to be born again. His divinity lives in my humanity, and he loves me no matter what, and he loves you no matter what. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They launch out on their mission to tell the disciples, saying nothing to anyone else. That's what Mark means. doesn't mean they didn't say anything. It means that they were on point. Go tell the disciples, then that's who I'm going to tell. And they did it with a reverential fear. They trembled. Uh, We always downplay feelings as Christians. For example, how many times have you heard that agape love is a choice, it's not a feeling? If you've attended church or listened to Bible studies, you've heard that a lot. I understand that, and it's actually true, of course, but it doesn't somehow cancel out the fact that, as human beings, we have feelings. God has feelings. God is a personal God with a mind, emotions, and a will of his own. To deny God's feelings is to deny that he possesses personality. We could cite passages where the feelings of love and laughter and compassion and jealousy, anger, hate, and joy, all of these are attributed to God. 
This isn't to say that our feelings and God's are the same. All of his feelings are rooted in his holy nature, and they are always expressed sinlessly. But since it's all right to have feelings, let's ask, do we tremble before God? Now, some of you are going to say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was my friend, and yet you say I must tremble in fear before him? Well, that isn't the only kind of trembling, and that's not the kind of trembling I have in mind. More like the trembling you have when you're in love. For tremble, let's substitute the word Twitterpated. Now, that isn't something that happens when your Twitter account gets hacked. That's from the 1942 Disney classic, Bambi. And it's a real word in the dictionary, by the way, Twitterpated. Thumper says, why are they acting that way? Owl says, why, don't you know? They're Twitterpated. Thumper says, Twitterpated? Owls, it's my, it's, just give me a break. Owls says, yes, nearly everyone gets Twitterpated in the springtime. For example, you're walking along, minding your own business. You're looking neither to the left nor to the right, when all of a sudden you run smack into a pretty face. Woo, woo. You begin to get weak in the knees. Your head's in a whirl. And then you feel light as a feather, and before you know it, you're walking on air. And then you know what? You're knocked for a loop, and you completely lose your head. To which Thumper says, Gosh, that's awful. <laughs> Twitterpated. You're going to be Twitterpated before God and you're going to be amazed. That word means ecstatic. And so this is highly charged emotion. I'm Twitterpated and I'm ecstatic because Jesus Christ is alive. I knew it, but now I experience it. Now, it's understandable that you may have left your first love for Jesus. It happened to the Christians in Ephesus who were attending a really great Bible-teaching church, Calvary Chapel of Ephesus, and whose corporate and individual works were commendable. You can read this in the Revelation of Jesus Christ where Jesus writes to the church. He said, you've left your first love. It was understandable, but it wasn't okay. It's not excusable. You and I should, spiritually speaking, still tremble with amazement at our resurrected Lord, who is our heavenly bridegroom. We should be ecstatic about salvation. Am I saying I always am or that you always are? No, that's the whole point. But we ought to be. And when we come to scripture like this, uh, talking about this event on the first Easter morning, we would say, and we see that first reaction. Those of you, let me put it this way. Those of you who are saved later in life, it should take you back to the, that day when you got saved at that concert, that church event, or, or that outreach. When all of a sudden you were overcome with emotion that you, a hell-doomed sinner, could be saved for time and for eternity. That though no one could help you and you could do nothing for yourself, Jesus Christ had died from, uh, on the cross for you. And he had risen from the dead to testify that everything that he said was true. And that you could really have the forgiveness of sins and no eternal life. And that you would be justified just as if you'd never sinned right there without you doing anything for yourself except believing in Jesus Christ. And you were ecstatic and you were Twitterpated. In some sense, you understood that. Waves of emotion rolled over you. Maybe you cried, maybe you didn't. That's not the point. But something happened. You experienced Jesus Christ. It, it's more than an experience. It's the truth of the word of God. We don't put our faith in an experience but there is an experience that's associated with it. It's first love. 
When Jesus said you've left your first love to the Ephesians, he didn't mean you're not walking in agape, you're not doing good works. They were. He said, hey, you, you no longer have this power in your life because you're not experiencing what it means to be saved. You believe in my resurrection, but you're shuffling along as if it means nothing. You and I should, spiritually speaking, still tremble with amazement at our resurrected Lord, who is our heavenly bridegroom. Jesus likes to frame his relationship with us in terms of love, like a bridegroom and a bride. I just did a wedding yesterday, and bridegrooms love brides, and brides love bridegrooms. And they're there to express that love, and they tremble. And they're excited. And and in some sense, we need to recapture that with Jesus. We should be ecstatic about our salvation. After all, the Lord is coming for us where? In the clouds. We could say he'll be walking on air when he comes for us. Shouldn't we be walking on air waiting for him?